Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we are following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. Sadia, how was your week? My week was good, Asad. I don't know if you'd noticed, but Immigrantly is featured on Apple Podcasts for the AAPI month. Awesome. And we are really excited. I think Apple Podcasts gets us, Asad. Yeah, they love to feature you. They love Immigrantly. Yeah, for those that don't know, Immigrantly is Sadia's other podcast. Sadia, do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, it's a podcast about extraordinariness of the immigrant experience. So if you haven't listened to it, would highly recommend checking <laughs> it out. But I'm really excited about this new feature. That's great. And so well-deserved. I mean, you've been winning awards after awards for that podcast. And so that's great. Yeah, definitely check it out. Thank you, Asad. And I've been listening to a couple of new podcasts, one from Australia called Shadow of Doubt, which is a true crime podcast. I'm loving it. I've only listened to episode one and I do want to diversify my portfolio of podcasts by listening to international podcasts and hopefully in different languages. I also tend to listen to the same, you know, dozen or so podcasts. And it's really hard for me to find something and get things in my repertoire. But I think you're right. I think we should be listening to, you know, there's a lot of great content that's being created across the world. And yeah, let me know how that goes. Can I share with you something that I've been thinking a lot about recently? Absolutely. So, you know, I've been on, on a documentary true crime kick recently with my now six week old daughter. We were watching <laughs> another documentary overnight a couple of weeks ago. And this one was on a crime that happened in the UK. It was like a 45 minute documentary. And I actually tried to go back and find the name of it. And I couldn't I couldn't mm. find it again. But I think I saw it on the Peacock channel. But the, the name doesn't matter. But here's the scenario. And I wanted to toss it to, to you. So there was a suspected kidnapping or murder that police think they knew who did it. But instead of arresting the person, they just followed him around for like 24 to 36 hours, hoping that he would lead them to the victim. So the question for you is, what would you have done in that situation if you were the member of the police? Like, would you arrest that person knowing that he's a potential danger to the community? Or would you feel comfortable letting him roam the streets, following him, hoping that he would you know, not harm someone, but lead you to the potential victim? That's a difficult question, Asad, because if they were following him, then they knew this person's whereabouts. So that puts me at ease, right? Yeah. 
also, I think for families to get closure, it's important to find victims. Right. Uh, and that's why I think they were doing it. But at the same time, you're right. What if this person committed some other crime in the meantime, right? So it's a difficult question. But if I were in that situation, what would I do? Hmm. I would probably arrest them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Because I wouldn't want them to just roam around freely after committing a crime, Asad. It's as simple as that. I I, I struggle with this one as well because I think you're right with the uh, with family members and if there's any chance that the person was alive, like yeah. So the question is, is like if you arrest them, will they talk and will will they let you know if the where their that person is being held captive, or will they actually go to that person? You know, if you're monitoring them, yeah, it's a tough situation. I would love to know what our listeners would do in that scenario. Please reach out to us and let us know. You can tweet at us or Instagram us or hit us up on uh, on Facebook or whatever. We'd love to know what you do in that scenario. And I'm gonna I'm gonna find the name of that documentary if it kills me, and I'm gonna share it out as well. And I'm sure I said there are other details that I don't know or you don't know, and it would be interesting to know more about the case and then make a decision based on more information. I guess. Yeah, uh, agreed. Th- th- this case was actually really interesting, and yeah, maybe we'll we'll do a whole episode on it uh, in the future if we if we if we ever start doing cases internationally. That sounds good. Yeah, let's get to today's story. Today's story came up when researching our Matthew Shepard episodes. You all remember those, Sadia. Matthew Shepard was the gay American student at the University of Wyoming who was beaten, tortured, and left to die near Laramie on the night of October 6th, 1998. And in the case I'm about to talk about, even though it happened a few months before Matthew's murder, I actually don't recall hearing anything about it, certainly not with the same attention that Matthew's case got. But it's an important event in our nation's history that may be new to a lot of our audience. And I just want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. I'm an avid true crime fan, as are you. And this is probably one of the more graphic and disturbing cases that uh, we've discussed so far. Hmm. It's Saturday evening on June 7th, 1998 in Jasper, Texas, a small town in eastern Texas. 49-year-old James Bird Jr. is attending a bridal shower for his niece at his parents' house and then a friend's anniversary party across town. In Jasper, Bird is a well-known fixture, really. He's considered amiable, social, and always seen traveling on foot because he doesn't drive. And we should note that James is a black man. Meanwhile, Lawrence Brewer and John King pick up their friend and fellow roommate, Sean Barry, at his job as a manager at the Jasper Twin Cinemas. Brewer is 31 years old, and King and Barry are 23 years old. They are all white men. And the three of them are out cruising the town. They're drinking, they're vandalizing mailboxes, and meandering all over in Barry's 1982 Ford pickup truck. Eventually, they come across James, who's walking home. It's around 2 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, they actually offer him a ride, Sadia. Hmm. The men then drive to a clearing in the woods and offer James a drink. Then, unprovoked, they begin to taunt and beat him. They hit him with a bat. They stomp on him. They spray his face with black spray paint. They partially strip him and they urinate on him. 
And then if that isn't bad enough, they chain him by the ankles to the hitch of the truck and they proceed to drag him approximately three miles along a rural road. I'm actually kind of tearing up reading this and, you know, I've read this a couple times now. It just really makes me want to throw up. So as you're reading this, it's making me so sad and it's so painful to listen to. Yeah. And we've done a lot of these cases, right? But you were absolutely right about what you said in the beginning. This is so graphic and it is so hard to even listen to. You know, I think this is the first time that I actually said it out loud and I think it just hits even harder. Yeah, so Sadia James, you know, while he's being dragged, he's swaying side to side and essentially shredding his skin. Two miles in, Bird hits a concrete drainage ditch and his head and arm are severed off. And then afterward, the men dub his remains in a segregated cemetery by a black church and they continue on to a party. I can't even wrap my head around the way the incident happened, right? This all started with these guys offering James a ride and then unprovoked, they start beating him, taunting him. Why? It's so crazy and bizarre and sad to see how these things can happen in a split second. Yeah, and, and for me, it's like any one of these multiple things that they did to him would be completely over the line and ridiculous. And the fact that they did all of this to him, you know, in a matter of, you know, a couple hours is just, it's, I mean, heavy for sure. You know, and it's shocking to believe that this was in 1998, but then it's not shocking at the same time, right? Yeah. yeah. Given Just, what's happening right now within American social discourse, how there is so much anti-Black racism and hatred and how so many young Black men have been targeted in the last, I don't know, 10 years, it's not surprising, which makes it even more sad and unbelievable in a way. No, 100% agree. And history keeps on repeating itself. And we can't as a community, you know, learn from all these horrible incidences. I don't think it's can't. I think it's we don't want to. Mm. Yeah, I believe that. So I said, what happened next? Yeah, so remember, Sadia, this happens overnight. So later on in the morning, a young churchgoer finds Bird's headless body. And, you know, I just can't imagine what you would do if you came across, you know, a body like that. Police start to investigate right away, and they quickly spot a trail of blood along Huff Creek Road, where James has been dragged. We started walking, and the further we walked down that road, the more evidence we found. We found the tank top and T-shirt that he was wearing. We found both of his shoes. We found his dentures. And then we found the billfold. Then that's when I knew that that it wasn't going to be a hit-and-run accident. I knew it was a black man that was dead. James's remains, as well as his personal items, like his wallet and his dentures even, were found in 81 places along the road. Um, His remaining clothes had been shredded and his elbows, his ankles, and parts of his backside had been skinned to the bone. 
and his knees and genitalia were grounded away. And I guess witnesses claimed that they saw James riding in the bed of a gray pickup truck with the three men up front around 2.30 in the morning. And then police also discovered the clearing showing signs of a fight and evidence left behind. And then they also found a tool with the name Barry engraved on it, Barry being one of the perpetrators. And that was found in the clearing as well with a lighter engraved with the words KKK and Possum, which was King's prison name. Barry was actually pulled over for a traffic violation and evidence was seen in his truck. Why do all these perpetrators have evidence in their fucking trucks and cars? Yes, uh, we, we've talked about this before. In some ways, it's obviously it's good. But like, yeah, if you're going to do a crime, get rid of the evidence. Don't do a crime. Don't, yeah, that that is that that is the message. Don't do a crime. So, Sadia, the FBI got involved because of the extremity of the case. And so Barry was interviewed and eventually assisted in the investigation. He was apparently told that one of the three would get a deal if they helped. Um, also, just to note, the district attorney's son was friends with Barry. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Barry says he didn't know Bird personally, but that they were loosely acquainted from having both lived in Jasper and possibly from county jail. So that's why Bird accepted the ride from them. Barry denies participating in what happened, saying he was a frightened bystander and that the other two threatened him. He was so scared, he said that he allegedly wet his pants. Barry claims he feared being charged as an accessory, even though he didn't participate. So he cleaned up his truck and kept quiet. And blood was found on Barry's boots and pants, though that just proved that he was kind of present at what happened. Allegedly, Barry told police they wanted to fuck with an N-word and it got out of hand. He later denied saying this. King, meanwhile, was identified as the ringleader and likely the driver during the dragging. Brewer claimed that Barry was the one that cut James's throat before the dragging started, and forensics showed signs of James trying to hold his head up during the dragging and that he was likely alive until he was beheaded. Oh my god, I said this is so painful. Yeah. All three men are charged with first-degree murder the day after the crime. So as I did a little bit of research on East Texas, it is known as one of the poorest and most historically racist parts of the state. And I think we should focus on the racist part because that to me is more relevant. What was the town of Jasper specifically like? Yeah, so Jasper was a town of about 8,000, then known as the, quote, jewel of the forest for its timber industry. It was divided nearly 50-50 between black and white residents and very devout religiously. There was a strong history of slavery and lynchings in Jasper and segregated schools up until the year that Bird graduated from high school. Jasper was a relatively poor town, though wealthier and far more progressive than many neighboring towns, as it had an African-American mayor and other African-American leaders. Yeah, that doesn't really sit well with me. Having an African-American mayor or other African-American leaders doesn't really tell us that the town is progressive, though, right? So Asad, I'm really curious to know more about James Bird, but I know we have to take a break, so we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Asad, what was James Bird like? You mentioned he was a fixture of Jasper. Yeah, so James was raised in Jasper, the third of eight children, and was witty and free-spirited, a people person, really, a big drinker, I guess, and the life of the party. He loved to sing and play the trumpet and wanted to put Jasper on the map with his music. He was divorced with three children and was also a grandfather at the time of his death. He had been a vacuum salesman, but had stopped working because of a seizure disorder, which is also why he didn't drive. And he lived alone in a government subsidized apartment across town. He'd been incarcerated several times, but for minor offenses like forgery, theft, and violating parole. As for the perpetrators, they were also familiar with jail. King was cellmates with Brewer when he was imprisoned for theft. It was in that maximum security prison that King became a white supremacist. Barry had also been in prison, but it's unclear if he was associated with a white supremacy group. Evidently, King's personality totally changed after his first stint in prison, where he'd met Brewer and been indoctrinated. I guess growing up, he'd been a sweet kid with a loving family and lots of friends, both black and white. His mom died on his 16th birthday, and soon afterward, he got involved with the quote, wrong crowd. People said he turned into a monster in prison. He was allegedly repeatedly sexually assaulted by the quote, black gang which only strengthened ties to the white supremacist gang in prison. I said, this makes me think, what should rehabilitation for minor offenses look like, right? Yeah. Because once we send people who've committed minor offenses to maximum security prisons, they become hardened criminals. And we're seeing it in this case, right? Yeah, I think that we've talked about this before, is that there's really no incentive for these prison systems to rehabilitate because they make more money the more that people are in prison, right? And so what's the incentive for them to rehabilitate people, especially with minor offenses? It's actually better for them, you know, business-wise, if they go back out in society and create bigger offenses and come back and stay longer in their jails. So I said, I'm curious, why was King sent to maximum security prison for theft? (laughs) That's a very fair question. What I could find is that he was given a 10-year sentence at the age of 20 for a string of burglaries and parole violations. He was out on parole again as of July 1997, so a year before the murder. And while on the outside, King seemed to really latch on to the white supremacy thing. He was out on parole again as of July 1997, so a year before the murder. And you know, he didn't solely use his affiliation for protection while locked up. While on the outside, he really seemed to latch onto the white supremacy thing. King covered his body with tattoos, including ones of a KKK member, a swastika with the words Aryan pride, and a black man hanged in a noose. His friend Brewer also had racist tattoos. In prison, King and Brewer were members of the new Confederate Knights of America, a Klan-based group and King supposedly tried to create a chapter in Jasper afterward with Brewer and Barry. King also owned the Turner Diaries, which is considered the racist rights Bible. It's an apocalyptic novel about genocide against minorities in the US written by the head of a neo-Nazi group. And he also owned a document known as the White Supremacist Manifesto and other similar literature. King and Brewer, having been recently released from prison, were crashing at Barry's one-bedroom apartment in Jasper at the time of Bird's murder. 
Yeah, I mean, this guy seems to be a white supremacist on steroids. I said, like, what the fuck? He's going full throttle with all his hate and vitriol and anti-black racism. And, you know, sadly, I actually read the Turner Diaries like 20 years ago. Uh, I was doing some research on it because I wanted to see, you know, just learn more about it recently. And actually, Amazon stopped selling it on their website maybe in 2020, I think it was. Uh, for whatever reason, but I, I found it funny that they still sell um, Mein Kampf by Hitler on their website. Hmm. And so I thought that was an interesting, like, you know, they don't sell this, but they sell that. It just it's one of those things that I find very interesting about um, modern day cancel culture. So I said there doesn't seem to be any question about the motive then. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It seems like Brewer and especially King's intent was clear, less so for Barry. Still, there are mixed reports of the town's reaction and fallout from the crime and subsequent trials. Some surmised that King carried out the murder as a way to demonstrate his loyalty to the Confederate Knights of America. Others claimed it was a drug deal gone wrong. And then others disparaged Bird as the town drunk rather than some hero. The crime, of course, made national news and Jesse Jackson Jr. and Al Sharpton, as well as members of the KKK and Black Panthers, arrived in Jasper soon after. The residents mostly avoided any involvement with those two groups. Religious leaders in Jasper attempted to bring the community together and the Bird family preached peace, saying, quote, we're not hating, we are hurting. A local piece said, quote, perhaps this tragedy happened in Jasper because we were spiritually prepared to shoulder the burden for the nation. Wait, I said, I don't understand this. What does this mean? This means that, like, if it was going to happen here, it should have happened in Jasper because we as a community could handle all the heaviness and weight of the incident. Some say the black and white communities joined in prayer and presented a united front. The sheriff, who was white, was well-respected for treating people fairly and had forged strong ties with black religious leaders. He promised not to let the case languish and said it was the first time he heard of a hate crime. The mayor assembled a task force to address local race relations and led a series of town meetings. On the other side, Bird's murder was said to unleash kind of this hostile divide between black and white residents in the city. It was also interesting of how the white people talked about James Bird. And that was the black community knew him as um, part of this big family in Jasper and that that was, a, that was very sort of involved with each other. And the white community always said, well, you know, he was the town drunk or he had these problems. They always wanted to sort of frame him as someone that was kind of outside of the community. The reaction split fairly evenly along racial lines. Whites were in denial about tension and blamed the media for tarnishing Jasper's reputation as, you know, quote, racist redneck idiots. Blacks saw the death as a modern lynching. One civil rights activist noted, quote, as disgraceful and shameless as the media can be in our age of saturation coverage, overwhelming television interests in an injustice like Byrd's murder, no matter how salacious, titillating, and profit-driven that interest may be, is better than indifference. Sadia, do you agree or disagree? I really think it's important for media to cover these heinous crimes. I don't have any doubts as to whether this should have been in the media or not. But I think when we see something like this in the media, then we should also be very honest about what happened and 
using the term modern lynching makes a lot more sense to me because that's exactly what happened, right? Yeah. So if we are covering these heinous crimes and if we are covering these injustices, then we should be honest about the degree or the magnitude of these injustices and how they impact individuals and communities. Sadhya, that was incredibly well said. Let's take another break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happened in court. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So now, Sadia, the three men are headed to trial. Remember, there is plenty of evidence to link the men to the crime. And because of King and Brewer's ties to white supremacy, both the town and state classified this as a hate crime. Good. I like that. Yeah, exactly. All three men are tried separately. King was first and Barry was last. Each essentially tried to pin the crime on the others during the trials. We already talked about Barry's claims. King said he was dropped off earlier with Brewer and that Barry was responsible. Brewer said that he only kicked Bird as King fought with him and that Barry split Bird's throat and that he didn't know Bird was chained to the truck until they were already driving. So Sadia, a letter was actually presented at King's trial where King actually tried to apparently smuggle something to Brewer in jail saying, quote, seriously though, bro, regardless of the outcome of this, we have made history and we should die proudly remembered, if need be, much Aryan love, respect and honor, my brothers in arms. And so like, you know, basically he was sending this letter to Brewer, uh, allegedly really proud of what happened. What the actual living fuck I said. Yeah, exactly. Only one black person was on King's jury, and he served as the foreman. He was also a prison guard who had attended middle school with King. Barry had two black witnesses testify on his behalf about his good reputation, and families of King and Bird were warm and empathetic toward one another. Bird's sister said there were no winners in this. We felt their pain as well. All three men separately were found guilty of capital murder. King and Brewer were sentenced to death by lethal injection. King, in fact, was the first white man in modern Texas history to receive the death penalty for killing a black person. Apparently, King smirked and said something vulgar when asked if he had anything to say to the birds. Bird's son actively opposed the death penalty for the killers, citing his faith. And, you know, in 2011, Brewer was executed. He was the first one. He did not express remorse, saying that he'd do it all over again. And as a final act of contempt, he requested this last meal that was so gratuitous, like 10 different things, which he didn't even touch, that it actually ended the custom in all of Texas. King, on the other hand, after multiple appeals, was executed in 2019. His final written statement was, quote, capital punishment, them without the capital get the punishment. And for Barry, he received life in prison and all of his appeals have been exhausted, but he is up for parole in 2028. Barry sent the Bird family a letter, quote, I know in my heart that you would see me for who I really am if I could just talk to you for a little while. Please know that I'm truly sorry about what the things that happened to your father, and I'm sorry that I didn't do more to try to prevent it. And, you know, in fact, Bird's son did visit Barry in prison to listen to his version of the night of the crime, 
and said Barry seemed sincere, that he was not angry with Barry, that he got a lot of clarity out of that conversation. So I'm going to pause there, Sadia. What do you think? Is this a hate crime? I said it's clearly a hate crime, right? It was, in fact, prosecuted as such, right? Yeah, Sadia, that's exactly right. And I guess, how would you think about it if it wasn't prosecuted as a hate crime? I would still consider it a hate crime, of course, given the evidence that we have. But I want to go back to a couple of other things, right? So one, capital punishment, death penalty. I'm against death penalty, so I don't know how I feel about that. And then also the impact, right? So this is undoubtedly a hate crime, but what impact did it have? Almost 24 years after this crime, we're still seeing lynching and we're still seeing racism against black community and we're still seeing young innocent black men being killed every single day so my question is what impact did this case have what impact did media coverage have and how do we enact real change in this society and to me asad the only way to enact real change is dismantling systems of oppression that exist and there is no other way we can rewrite history in America. So while yes, you and I can deliberate and say it was a hate crime and yes, it is a hate crime and justice was served, what we're seeing in our society right now, it's disheartening and it shows that not much has changed since then. I think one thing that I will say that has happened and that has changed um, is that at least for me, uh, in 1998, I was a freshman in college, I think, around that time. And I would say that in the last, let's call it three years, five years, I've become vastly more aware about what's happening to various uh, minority communities in, in the U.S. And, and frankly, across the world, more so than I ever was before. And that, I don't know if that's because there are more conversations that are happening. There is more stuff that's happening on social media or I've become more awakened, you know, personally to this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I do think that things are changing and have changed in, in the last 25 years. But I, clearly we have a, a long way to go. So I said I will push back on that and say the awareness comes through social media. But awareness is not enough. You are seeing more cases because you are seeing those cases on social media and people are having conversations and there is a lot of online activism. But what's happening on the ground? We haven't seen any big changes, any paradigm shift. Those systems of oppression still exist. So to me, yes, we can have more conversations and we are having more conversations, which is a great starting point. But when do we move past that? For some people, they need the change to happen right now and they need to happen in a big sweeping way. And I think in a lot of this, I would love to see change happen overnight. But I think the reality is, is that change is slow. Yeah, we can agree to disagree, Asad. So what is the legacy of this crime? Yeah, so seven months after Bird's murder, the fence that had separated the black and white sections of the Jasper City Cemetery since the 1830s, where Bird's body was found, was taken down. And the Bird family established the Bird Foundation for Racial Healing to, quote, promote racial healing and cultural diversity through education, which listeners can donate to. We'll have the links in the show notes. 
The foundation hopes to open a museum to digitize an anti-hate oral history project, amongst uh, other things. A bench in Bird's honor was placed next to the Jasper Courthouse, but then it was moved to a seemingly less prominent location. And then, you know, Jasper has made really slow progress in amending race relations. Two teen boys were charged with desecrating Bird's grave with slurs in 2004. Tensions rose again in 2012 when the first black police chief and two black city council members were fired and two Jasper police officers were caught on video beating a black woman in 2013. On the other hand, the three perpetrators seem to be punished accordingly, you know, duly. And on the other, many black residents don't feel like white residents truly acknowledged or accepted what had happened. And then on a state level, the governor in 2001, Governor Perry, enacted Texas James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act, which increased sentences for crimes motivated by bigotry. And in 2009, we've mentioned this before, but President Obama enacted the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Strengthen the protections against crimes based on the color of your skin, the faith in your heart, or the place of your birth. Increasing the federal government's accountability to prosecute hate crimes. And then, you know, just to note, James's death has been memorialized throughout pop culture in songs, films, and books. One such documentary is called Two Towns of Jasper by PBS, and it followed the trial with two film crews, one interacting solely with black residents and the other one with white residents. And then, just to note, one of Bird's daughters became a police officer because of the murder and wrote the book, quote, Triumph Over Tragedy, and she is said to have forgiven the killers. We'll have a link to that also in the show notes. So, Sadia, any final thoughts or takeaways from this case? As a final thoughts, let's try to recognize and celebrate humanity in everyone and wish for others what we wish for ourselves. Yeah, I think uh, I can't say it any better than that, Sadia. As always, thanks everybody to listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, please check out the links in the show notes about this case. You can also email your thoughts about this case and any other story that you think that we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter and all the places. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. As they will say, please share it with a friend. That will definitely help us. Uh, promote what we're doing here. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. 